Our guests today on Travel with Rick Steves are proof that caring travelers can make a big difference. Greg Mortensen, who founded the Central Asia Institute, is making a lasting difference by addressing the root causes of poverty in Afghanistan. The best-selling author of Three Cups of Tea has even become a model for the U.S. military as its leaders attempt to understand how Afghan society works. I've seen that happen in thousands of cases with mothers who basically refuse to allow their sons to join the Taliban. And the Taliban are pretty much targeting illiterate, impoverished society. And Art Simon also understands that charity alone is not enough. Art founded Bread for the World to advocate for changes in policies that are supposed to alleviate poverty but just end up keeping people poor. In one lifetime, we have seen a dramatic exodus out of hunger on the part of most of the world's population. I'm Rick Steves. Stay with us as we turn our love for travel into a heart for the world. Today on Travel with Rick Steves. Today's guests on Travel with Rick Steves just might change the way you see the world. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Greg Mortensen turned a disastrous mountain trek into a chance to be embraced by village elders in the most remote corners of Afghanistan and Pakistan. With Greg's support, they're now building schools to educate both boys and girls, even where it was taboo to the local Taliban. And later in the hour, the founder of Bread for the World joins us to take your calls as we explore how to break the cycle that keeps poor people down. When you travel around the world, sometimes you realize there are solutions to persistent and complex problems that are eluding the experts. Travelers pick up all sorts of insights by meeting locals. And today, I'm talking with Greg Mortensen. Greg is author of the bestseller Three Cups of Tea. His latest book is Stones into Schools, talking about building schools in the heart of Taliban Afghanistan. Greg has dedicated the last couple decades of his life to building schools. He's built over 130 schools, educated 60-some thousand students, most of them girls. He's the co-founder of the nonprofit Central Asia Institute and founder of Pennies for Peace. He received Pakistan's highest civilian award, the Star of Pakistan, for his work. And I believe Greg's all about promoting peace with books, not bombs, in Pakistan and Afghanistan. That is quite a challenge. And Greg Mortensen joins us now to get us up to date. Greg, thanks for being here. Hi, Rick. It's great to be with you today. Thanks. Well, let's just get right to the point. Greg, how do you promote peace with books rather than bombs? Well, I think education has to be both our our national and international top priority. I, I also am a firm believer that it's really about girls' education. I, I grew up in Africa on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro, who some of your audience might have, uh, you know, gagged and puked their way to the summit like I did when I was 11. <laughs> <laughs> But my father, he set up a hospital, and he, he always insisted that local people be in charge, and he, he spent a lot of time with relationships. And the reason I think education is a key is that girls' education reduces infant mortality, it reduces population explosion, but it also, in Islamic countries, when someone goes on jihad, and jihad means a quest or struggle, it could mean joining a militant group or other types of endeavors, they should get permission from their mother if they don't, it's very shameful. And when women have an education, they're much as likely to encourage your son to get into terrorism or violence. And I've seen that happen in thousands of cases with mothers who basically refuse to allow their sons to join the Taliban. And, and the Taliban are pretty much targeting illiterate, impoverished society. And I think often, as you mentioned, it's really travelers who gain insight based on the experiences they have in relationships and also you know, shared appreciation of the things that we all are are dear to us, you know, uh, education, health, right. and, and just a cup of tea, maybe. Okay, now in light of that, big news, we're sending over 30,000 more troops to Afghanistan. I understand our military is actually encouraging certain members of the military to read your book, Three Cups of Tea, before they go. Who's supposed to be reading it, and what are they going to get out of it? Well, about four years ago, I started getting significant amount of requests from the military, so I, I'm a veteran. I also don't believe that there's a military solution, um, as even our military leaders would tell you. I've, I've spoken to many military leaders, and they said the solution's got to be much broader. What I talk to them about are simply cultural issues, uh, tribal nuances, and how to deal with very subtle, you know, complex issues that, again, have to do with, in the tribal areas of Pakistan and Afghanistan, even if you have a dispute, you always first sit down, um, you have arbitration, and the key is that it's imperative that the elders are involved and that we entrust them. And one of the exciting things to see is that the U.S. military, I think, really gets it. And um, many of our officers have been on the ground several times 
uh, several deployments, and it involves building relationships, listening more, and also having respect for the people that we're there to serve. So building relationships and listening more, it sounds like a Alan Alda approach to <laughs> militarism. And it's actually, we're learning, I think, through the School of Hard Knocks that that's the way to do it. Now, you've built, um, what, uh, how many schools have you figured well, you've we've, built now? we've built 131. We're also running 60 more. And, and they don't blow them up. They don't burn them down. Is that because you're talking to the elders? Well, we're talking to the elders. The other thing is when we set up a school, we provide the skilled labor and materials and teacher training, but the community has to reciprocate with free labor, meaning two to 5,000 days of free labor, free land, and free resources. So we need the local community buy-in. And I think that's the real reason the Taliban are not attacking our schools and also some other small organizations who have such um, strong relationships with the communities. You know, Greg, by the way, I'm speaking with Greg Mortensen. He's the author of Three Cups of Tea and his new book, Stones into Schools, talking about his experience helping America wage soft power rather than hard power, just in a pragmatic, this is the way you get anything accomplished. You know, I think wise development agencies all over the globe now are realizing this local buy-in that you're talking to is critical. If people don't own it themselves and take pride in it, if it's not done in conjunction with elders and, and the big man in the village, and if it doesn't work girls into the equation and women into the equation, it's just not going to work. And you've got all of those ingredients here, and now it's becoming required reading for our military. I have tremendous respect even for some of our military leaders because of their humility and kind of pragmatic approach with the elders and relationships. Um, Admiral Mike Mullen, who's the chairman, joint chief of staff, or basically the military boss, he gave a speech at the American Legion National Convention in Louisville, Kentucky on August 13th. And he began his speech by saying, historically, we, meaning the United States, have been far too arrogant in the world, and we need to go out and serve with humility. And this is not coming from, a, you know, a ugly American traveler or something. There's there's a very strong lesson there that, you know, when we go out and travel, and we, we need to have great appreciation, respect, and, and also, you know, have a little bit of humility. It goes a really long ways. So you don't think you can shock and awe proud people into submission? <laughs> no, I think it's the opposite of shock <laughs> and awe is, is, is the approach that's going to work. And even I think our military gets it. Um, another thing is, one suggestion had been from, like, Vice President Joe Biden to pull troops but do more selected targeted bombings. But if you talk to the elders in Afghanistan, that is the number one way to antagonize people. But when you bomb and kill civilians, they say there's absolutely no replacement. Even if you kill one Taliban but you kill 10 civilians, it's not worth it. Now, Greg, are you the only American recipient of the Star of Pakistan Award? Uh, yes, um, I'm the third foreigner, and the, the award is only given actually every five to eight years, so it's not very common. So you have won their respect. You're a hero. You're a Yankee hero in <laughs> Afghanistan. People take care of you when you go. They they provide security. <laughs> yeah, security and lots of tea, and you know, I, it's the same in the U.S. You know, I'm just in awe of how generous and compassionate and caring Americans are. It just Rick, you know, from traveling so much that. Basically, people all around the world, we're 95% the same. We have the same hopes and aspirations, but we fight about our 5% differences. Isn't that an unfortunate truth? Now, Greg, I'm struggling with this, and I'd love to get your candid take on this. I read in Three Cups of Tea how hard you work to get 20000 bucks together to build a school and the impact of that. And when you think that one soldier from the United States in Afghanistan costs a million dollars a year, when you think that when we fire a single Tomahawk missile, it costs $500,000, that Tomahawk missile could build 20 schools, that one soldier costs enough to build 40 schools, what's your reaction to that? Isn't that frustrating considering how hard you work to build a school and how powerful that school is in waging soft power? Uh, it's, it's frustrating, and when people over there understand that one U.S. soldier in their country cost a million dollars. It kind of blows them away. But And I wish we could just spend more time thinking about education. There, there's been actually some very incredible, exciting things happening in Afghanistan. To me, the most single most exciting thing is that in 2000, at the height of the Taliban, there were 800,000 kids in school. These were nearly all boys. And today, there are 8.5 million children in school, including 2.5 million females. 
In Taliban country. In Taliban country. And this is the greatest increase in school enrollment in any country in modern history, and nobody in the U.S. seems to be aware of it. But, Greg, the average American, I believe, because of the power of our media, would think the Taliban does not allow girls to get an education. Well, they, unfortunately, on the other hand, the Taliban have bombed or destroyed over a 1,000 schools in the last three years in Afghanistan. These are nearly 90% of girls' schools. But when you have the elders involved, they're able to work with the Taliban because even the Taliban have to walk a really fine line and they don't want to antagonize the community. Right. I mean, and I've seen somewhat of a shift in the last two years in both countries. People are getting really sick and tired of having outsiders, mm. meaning the Taliban, come in and dictate. So essentially what you do is empower local elders to oversee the building of a school. Uh, yes. And, you know, I'm, I call myself a cheerleader. I, I, yeah. I'm overseas quite a bit, but some schools we've established, I've never even been there. And oh. part of it is because they're just so remote and we have phenomenal support from the communities. And I guess, you know, the real reason I do this is that women tell me, you know, I ask them, what do you want and how can I really help you? And they say, we don't want our babies to die and we want our children to go to school. And it might seem kind of simple, but you know, that's really my motivating factor is that I, I just want to help out a little bit. Greg, I was interested in your book. You mentioned that one of your strategies is to plant schools at the end of the road communities, like that first community where you got inspired to do this. But what's your purpose of building schools as far away from the power centers as you can? Well, I guess, um, you know, I, I used to hike and trek a lot, and then I was climbing. And I always like to go the unusual or you know, a different route. And I have a gray pelican case at home that I take with me on all my travels from Montana. And it has a quote of William Kitteridge, the author, who he mentioned the, the last best place. So our mission, our focus is on getting education where there is no education. And it's generally three reasons. Um, one, extreme physical isolation. Number two, areas of conflict. And number three, areas of religious extremism. So, hmm. you know, we we can never do the job of governments to set up thousands of schools, but we try to set up uh, models of thriving community-based schools in, you know, kind of challenging areas to show that it can be done. So that's kind of what we like the most. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Greg Mortensen, Greg's classic bestseller, Three Cups of Tea, and his latest book, Stones into Schools, in the heart of Taliban Afghanistan, telling the story about how a mountain climber morphed into a humanitarian who's dedicating his life to building schools in Afghanistan and in Pakistan so we can learn about waging soft power rather than hard power and all of us be safer and better off. It is something that I think Americans should be thankful for, that, that there is an American who is considered a hero in Pakistan, and that's you, Greg Mortensen. Thank you so much for your work and best wishes. Well, thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. Blessings of peace to you. Thank you. There are many ways Americans can make a difference in helping to eliminate the root causes of poverty around the world. Up next, Art Simon shares his life's work in advocating for the poor. We're at 877-333-7425. By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Je m'appelle Patrick Noël, mon voyage exclusif l'eau l'île Maurice dans l'océan Indien. Uh, that was Creole for I'm Patrick Noël and I will travel with Rick Steves to Mauritius 500 kilometers from Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. Mon nom c'est Patrick Noël, mon voyage avec Rick Steves et me descend l'eau l'île Maurice dans l'océan Indien. Cool.
Way back when I was a college student rummaging around Seattle's Pike Place Market, some crazy guy in the street gave me a book, just gave me a book right out of the blue called Bread for the World. I think it was back in the, in the mid-1970s. And I just thought, well, here's a guy standing out in the street handing out books. I'll, I'll give it a look. I read Bread for the World, and it introduced me to the economics of hunger. And it introduced me to an organization called Bread for the World. And today I'm joined by the founder of Bread for the World, Art Simon. Art founded Bread for the World 35 years ago. He's retired from active presidency of the organization, but he's still involved in the organization. Today it has a staff of 100 people, $12 million annual budgets, and it's uh, motivating or, or mobilizing people who care about telling our government there's needs of hungry people. And 60,000 people are members of Bread for the World. Bread for the World's battlefield is not Namibia or Guatemala or Ethiopia, but it's Capitol Hill. That's where they're working, and that's where they're encouraging their members to send their letters to advocate for hungry people around the world. Arthur Simon has spent a lifetime fighting hunger. He's still at it long after most people would take a well-deserved break, and Art has traveled all the way to our studio here in Seattle to introduce us to his new book, The Rising of Bread for the World. Arthur Simon, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you, Rick. Wow. You founded Bread for the World 35 years ago, and... Tell me, just in a tight mission statement, what is Bread for the World? Bread for the World is the voice of Christian citizens, uh, Christians and others, reaching their own elected representatives in Congress for action and policy changes that will help to address hunger both here in the States and worldwide. Now, it's an advocacy organization rather than a charity, and I think people get that mixed up. Explain the difference between advocacy and charity. Well, basically, uh, charity usually means direct assistance. And bread does not in do any direct assistance. We don't have a, a staff working in various countries. We don't distribute food. What we do is get citizens to speak up on behalf of the needs of hungry people and of changes that are needed in government policy to address hunger. For every dollar put into advocacy for hungry people, there is a leveraging impact of at least $100. Is there another dimension beyond that, Art, that if the United States does something on the international arena for hungry people, other countries will be more likely to follow our lead? Yeah, absolutely. When, when the U.S. takes leadership, other countries tend to follow. What's an example? Uh, well, foreign aid would be an example. When we step up to the plate and increase our foreign assistance for poverty-focused efforts uh, in poor countries, other countries are going to increase their assistance. If we drag our feet, then they feel we're not doing our part, right. and we're the richest nation on earth. Why should they do their part? Now, your brother was Senator Paul Simon. Yes. And uh, you and your brother grew up in Eugene. Your dad was a Lutheran pastor. Correct. You must have done something right to instill both of you, you and your brother, in this, in this passion for service. Your group, Bread for the World, was sort of groundbreaking in getting into advocacy. And of course, Senator Paul Simon, for people who remember him, he was a champion of government helping people. Yes. Did Paul's effectiveness as a senator encourage you to think Bread for the World could fill a need to advocate for hungry people on Capitol Hill? Yes. Paul's whole career did. Of course, Bread for the World started before Paul became a senator. He was a state representative and state senator, then lieutenant governor in Illinois, and then a congressman, and then a senator. So it was a, uh, a progressive, progressive yeah. uh, career. But yes, Paul's uh, activity in government was a model for me uh, in seeing what one person could do to affect change for a lot of people. He believed government could be active in helping people. He saw that the government as a as a potentially very positive instrument in helping people. Not the only instrument, and not always the best mm -hmm. solution, but, but, appropriate. but, but often uh, and a very appropriate solution. In Bread for the World, you specifically target hunger rather than poverty. Why is that? Well, we target both, but we focus primarily on hunger because hunger is perhaps the most acute form of poverty. When we focus on responding effectively to people who are hungry, we're also hitting the poorest of the poor. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Arthur Simon, and his new book is The Rising of Bread for the World. For more information on Art's work, you can go to bread.org.
Art, when you're working as a lobby organization, it's critical that you need to be bipartisan. And hunger seems to me kind of, isn't it a lot of liberal versus conservatives, Democrats versus Republicans? What's the importance of being bipartisan in your work? Well, I, I, hunger is not a political problem at heart. Hunger is a human problem. And there's no reason in the world why a conservative, as well as a, a liberal politically, should not care about hungry people and respond to them. You can assume conservatives and, and liberals care equally if they're decent people about hungry people. They have different um, solutions to the problem. Is that a fair way to say it? Well, that may be a fair way to say it. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the balance is there. But in any case, bread for the world, when we go out after a particular issue, uh, we do so not on the basis of is it uh, a democratic right. issue or republican issue, but is it something that can make a difference for hungry people? And then we get sponsorship on both sides of the aisle for Because just practically speaking, you'd be dead in the water without bipartisan sponsorship. That's right. Bob Dole is one of the members of our board of directors. He's a longtime activist for Bread for the World. He is. And when he was in the Senate, he played a role as a champion of uh, hungry people. Do you have a problem calling Bread for the World a lobby organization, given the image of lobbyists? Well, we use the word carefully. Uh, I don't have a problem with it, but... When I do, when I speak to people and and use the word, I I put it in quotation marks because we don't wine and dine officeholders. We don't contribute to political campaigns, and and we're not out after our own financial self-interest. We're just a group of ordinary citizens who have conscience, and we want to speak out on their behalf. Proverbs says, "Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves," and and that's what bread for the world does. It's interesting because when you think about the bad image lobbyists have. They're lobbying for somebody's selfish interests. Right, right. And you are lobbyists, but by the general understanding of the word, you don't fit the mold because you're lobbying for somebody else's interest. For somebody else's interest, exactly. That doesn't have any power on Capitol Hill. Precisely. You're up against the big guys. Yes. How's the concept of advocacy doing these days among other organizations that care? Because it's a huge leap to go from developmental aid, ignoring government policies, to recognizing that government policies really can scuttle all of the good work you've done just with a quick signature. One of the things that my successor, Bread for the World, has really done well, David Beckman, uh, just really one of the great uh, humanitarian leaders uh, in the world today, in my opinion, but he has been pushing hard uh, to get private assistance groups to see the importance of uh, people moving also into the area of speaking up on behalf of hungry people to national leaders. So is there any movement in the Gates Foundation in moving toward yeah, advocacy? Yeah, no, the Gates Foundation is a great example of how a private citizen doing private assistance on a huge scale has uh, come to see the importance, the crucial importance, of also addressing public policy. But Gates, rather than directly getting into advocacy, Gates has just been recognizing how they might work in concert with groups like you, and right. they might fund you to do advocacy in the same direction that they're doing the hands-on developmental work. That's right. But when Gates funds a group like Bread for the World, it's not funding the lobbying per se, but it's funding our educational and research arm that moves into the area okay. of uh, preparing people for advocacy. Art. A lot of times, I think, by our nature as wealthy people, relatively wealthy people, we want to find an excuse to undercut the value of a good cause or something. And a lot of times, well-meaning charity and developmental aid can actually be negative for hungry people. What's an example of how aid can, can hurt people? One example would be food assistance that may undermine livelihoods of farmers in a developing country. Where there's an emergency, you really do need to get food to people. So food aid is essential, but it has to be done in a way that does not undercut farmers in, let's say, a country like Ethiopia. Or So if you're a small farmer in Ethiopia and you're having a tough time making it, yeah. and all of a sudden a carrying pile of grain comes from the United States, yeah. what you grew is no longer saleable or yeah. saleable at a loss. Exactly. So that, that can be a problem. Wow. So food aid has to be handled very, very carefully. And always the emphasis should be on uh, uh, bolstering the capacity of local producers. And that's sort of the economics of hunger that, yes. that you talked about in one of your books, Bread for the World. 
a big challenge for anybody in this is probably to, to humanize the actual violence and, and pain of hunger. How do you put a face on hunger um, for a rich person in the suburbs that never encounters it? Well, the best way is if you can help them encounter it uh, by you know getting in touch with And with in the United States, that, you can do that in your own communities. But you can also read about it, and you can learn about it from others. But and, you need to uh, take the initiative because it won't come to you. That's right, and it's very easy for us simply to put that off the screen and uh, not deal with it. It's more comfortable. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Peter's on the line in Ontario, California. Peter, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking it, Rick. Um, would like to thank both of you for the incredible awareness that you bring to the world with an issue like hunger. Reverend Simon, my question is that how can those of us who want to help where we don't have the time because, you know, we are working full time and because of the severity of the recession, we don't have the money to put forward. How would you recommend that we we help our fellow man? Well, I think there's still uh, plenty of ways we can do it through direct assistance. I mean, uh, yes, a lot of people are hurting and, and all of us in some way or another are affected by the recession. But but we're still the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. And so there's a lot we can do that we're not doing to help others directly. But we can also, whether we're hurting or not, uh, raise our voices as citizens and have a great influence on the outcomes of what the Congress of the U.S., what the administration does or does not do. But that's one of the primary tools of Bread for the World is to motivate leaders in their churches to write letters to their congresspeople about whatever issue is timely. It's, yeah. so, it's so simplistic. Yeah, but, it, but, a, but a letter makes a huge difference. Right. I mean, uh, that, that's an amazing thing, the leverage power of a person that might not have any money to spare for this cause that simply lets their representative know as a constituent they care about this. Art, is there an example yeah, of that? Well, let me give you an example. Uh, child survival. Back in the mid-'80s, UNICEF and the World Health Organization launched what they call the Children's Health Revolution because uh, some simple techniques had been discovered that very easily could could dramatically reduce the high death rate among infants and young children in developing countries. So Bread for the World uh, drafted a proposal that was introduced in Congress to uh, establish a child survival fund within our foreign aid program. When that was introduced, nobody paid any attention until the letters started coming in. A trickle and a flow, then an avalanche. And boy, Congress acted, established that child survival fund. And as a result, hundreds of millions of dollars began to help kids who were dying. Not only did Congress's action help, but that triggered action from other donor nations as well. Today, five million fewer kids die from hunger and uh, simple diseases often related to hunger, uh, largely because people wrote letters to members of Congress. Now, how is that work associated with the United Nations Children Fund? Is that a Well, UNICEF was one of the big, big promoters of that. And yeah. Jim, Jim Grant, uh, the late Jim Grant, he was director of UNICEF, and really he was the international champion of child survival. Because in your book, you, you described how UNICEF arguably saved more lives in the poor world than Hitler, Stalin, and Mao all together yeah, killed. Yeah, right, right. That's incredible. And that's really the st- part of the story of child survival. And uh, Jim Grant, the uh, director of UNICEF, he said that uh, Bread for the World was, uh, was the leading citizen's voice to get action on child survival. So it's interesting, uh, Peter, how, how a letter can actually do more than a dollar. That's that's astounding. I mean, just... It really is quite exciting. Thanks for your call, Peter. Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye. James is on the line in Secaucus, New Jersey. Hi, James. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, uh, Reverend. Hi. I have a question about uh, seasonal hunger, and you know, especially in Africa, where you know so much relies on seasons and drought. Um, how come that doesn't get the media attention that other more banner headlines do when there's a large rebel outbreak and you know, Western society feels that they need to get involved. You know, what could we do to get more 
support who um, help counter some of these ongoing problems in our fight against extreme poverty, which impacts one-sixth of the world. Uh, yeah, good good observation there. I would like to see the media do a much better job of covering the issue of hunger and, and hunger problems as they develop in well, regions We're, we're like talking Africa. about s- seasonal hunger. I, I've not even heard of that. What does that mean, seasonal hunger? Well, what I know of it is so much of the problems in the third world in Africa is um, related to how, you know, they rely on the harvest and all the other things that are missing, you know, a good banking system to help them balance their budgets from one season to the next. So you have farmers relying on shylarks and local people making loans at 100% interest to help people finance their crops, and they fall into like a downward spiral. And it's a big, big concern, and it's one that gets overlooked, and most people don't know about it. Yeah, thank you, James. That's a very astute observation. Yeah, and it's, I think it gets at the heart of a lot of what uh, needs to happen in Africa. There has to be a development of the kinds of structures that will enable, say, a small-scale farmer to sell his crop at a time and at a price when he can get a good price for it and not, re- yeah. not have to rely on uh, lenders who charge exorbitant rates of interest in order to just survive over the the months of the year when food is not uh, as immediately available. That's where, where assistance is needed to help Africans build that kind of thing. And then we they would need to rely much less on our food aid and could do a much better job themselves of investing more in methods that would make them more productive in food. You know, some of these countries are so beautiful, like Uganda and others are, you know, they don't, they don't have a lot to offer, but is there anything we could do as travelers besides just making donations to bring more to these countries to help them get out of extreme poverty? It's a tough question, right? <laughs> yeah. James, thanks for your call. Thank you, James. Bye-bye. Bye. The mystery of life, the steps in the hall, the sound of the wind and the waterfall. It's the moon floating free, it's the curve of the slope, it's an N, it's a B, it's a reason for hope. And the riverbank sings of the waters of March, it's the promise of spring, it's the joy in your heart. There's more with Art Simon and what he's learned over the years since founding Bread for the World in his mission to advocate for the poor with our nation's decision makers. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. You can also share your thoughts with us in our radio message boards. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Art Simon is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He started Bread for the World in 1974. It continues today as a nonprofit, faith-based agency lobbying for the needs of poor and hungry people both in America and around the world with our politicians in Washington, D.C., Art's book about his experiences is called The Rising of Bread for the World, An Outcry of Citizens Against Hunger. Reverend Simon is the President Emeritus of the organization. Their website is bread.org. Art, you've worked on this for 35 years, and you've dealt with public perceptions and so on. What are the biggest misperceptions about hunger that you've had to deal with? I think the biggest misperception is that hunger is so massive and uh, so unsolvable that there's little or nothing that any one of us can do to make a difference. And that's just a terrible myth. When I was a boy, I remember hearing President Roosevelt talk about two-thirds of the world being hungry. Mm -hmm. When Bread for the World started in 1974, it was about one-third. Two years ago, it was 15%. In one lifetime we have seen a dramatic exodus out of hunger on the part of most of the world's population. In spite of huge population growth. In spite of the huge population growth. And huge investment in wars. Right. Now, in absolute numbers, it hasn't changed that much, though it has gone Uh, down. So if you look at it as a percent, it's But as a percentage, I mean, it has gone down dramatically. Now, a lot of people think, well, if you 
feed the hungry people, they'll just have more kids, and it'll make the problem worse. It's more like the exact opposite, that where people are hungry and their kids are dying in large numbers, their children uh, provide some potential social security for them in old age. So that is a great incentive to have large families. So in the developing world, where you don't have social security networks built in, provided by society, and you don't have people with savings accounts to cover their retirement, the mindset of any parent is have a lot of kids, a big percentage of them will die in infancy, but somebody will survive if you have enough of them to take care of you when you're no longer able to care for yourself. Exactly. That isn't the only reason people have kids, obviously, but that is a very big uh, factor. Statistically, when affluence goes up across the globe, what happens to birth rates? When affluence goes up, birth rates go down. Why? Because parents have confidence that their children are going to live. You know, when Bread for the World started out, the average uh, number of births in developing countries was six. Today, it is an average of about three. So the, the birth rate has gone dramatically down. We are making headway Is that there. because of education, family planning, and economic security? Yes. Those three things? All, all three. There's a big notion among developmental aid organizations that a real key to tackling this in a constructive, sort of let people help themselves kind of way, which everybody wants to do instead of just throwing food at them, is to take care of women being discriminated against and help women get educated. Yes. What's the rationale behind that? Oh, it's a very key thing. The World Bank has said from time to time that the biggest single thing you can do to help people move out of poverty is educate girls. Hmm. When women are educated and they have opportunities then in the workforce to do things to enhance their well-being economically, they're going to use that to feed their kids. Because they'll stay home and nurture their kids. They're going to the nurture they their to. kids. They're going to see to it that their kids go to school. That isn't, uh, I am embarrassed to say as a man, that isn't as often the <laughs> case when men well, have access. You know, among the general citizenry here in our country, we feel like we're a generous nation. What's your take on what's the perception and what's the reality of how generous America is? Well, in one sense, I think America is very generous. When it comes to direct assistance, people do respond, and we contribute you know, large amounts of money. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to us as a nation, uh, the story is quite different. We somehow are reluctant to work through the government, and we have the misperception I think going back to right after World War II and the Marshall Plan was uh, really reaching out and rescuing Western Europe. Oh, yeah. And we were giving like 10% of our national budget for relief for those people in Western Europe. People think today that we're giving maybe 15% of our national budget as foreign aid. What are we giving? It really is uh, less than 1%. Now, the the difference is we are a nation that is trained psychologically or socially to think in terms of not relying on government to do charity, but support groups that do charity that are apart from government. My friends in Europe have never been to a charity dinner. We go to charity dinners all the time because that's what people do to fund schools and programs for kids and health initiatives or whatever. The government doesn't do it, so we give our money to private charities. Europeans, on the other hand, don't have the concept of that, and they just expect their government to do it. Consequently, as far as what governments give, we're way down there. We're way down. But maybe as a society as a whole, we're more generous than that would indicate. I think that's true. I think it's true. Art, you've spent 35 years advocating for hungry people on Capitol Hill with the basic premise that U.S. policy affects hungry people. How can American trade policy impact a a poor person in Guatemala? Well, our trade policies, if they're open to what poor countries produce, can provide income and livelihoods for poor people in a country like Guatemala. If we clamp quotas on what they produce, if we raise tariffs uh, higher on the goods produced in poor countries than we do goods produced in Western Europe, for example, Mm -hmm. as happens generally to be the case, then we're putting an impediment in their way, making it harder for them. But we've got this religion almost called free trade. Yeah. And uh, it becomes an excuse for having uh, aggressive policies on developing nations. I read once that Britain wanted to give favorable treatment to its former colonies that were poor now by paying more than the national market for their bananas or whatever. 
and the United States threatened trade sanctions against Britain if it gave its former colonies a break because they would be violating free trade. Yeah. <laughs> Does that actually happen? Uh, I, I'm not aware of that, but I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Have you encountered that sort of a passion for free trade at the expense of some country trying to be altruistic? Well, what we have encountered is the rhetoric of free trade and the insistence that others practice it to our benefit. But when it comes to our own farm products, for example, we subsidize so some of our wealthiest there. farmers right. and undercut the market for some of the poorest farmers in the world. Sometimes we're free trade and sometimes we're not. That's right. I'm a capitalist and I really believe in supply and demand. That's, that's what makes too. things click. But I also know that if you really believe in the free market, if my cat has more buying power than your child, my cat gets the tuna. Yeah. End of story. Free enterprise is a great engine for the economy of any country. America has thrived because of free enterprise, but it is an engine, and an engine is not a steering wheel. And left to its own devices, it is self-destructive. And if your steering wheel incorporates ethics into it, yeah. you've got yourself a civilized nation That's right. that can be affluent. You want to steer that great engine into doing things that are truly human. Now, can you make the case in an age when our nation is really concerned about the risk of terrorism, is there a rationale that you can fight terror by being more generous in developmental aid? We live in a dangerous world, and, and I have no doubt that the United States has no choice but to have a strong military. Right. And that's going to cost a lot of money. So I'm not, I'm not saying we no. should just right. scrap our military. But it is also true, and even our Secretary of Defense, uh, Gates, is saying, we have got to find a soft way of influencing other nations. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm speaking with Art Simon, who is the founder of Bread for the World, a Christian citizens lobby group that lobbies for the needs of hungry people uh, at home and abroad in Washington, D.C. Their website is bread.org, and Art's new book is The Rising of Bread for the World. Judy's on the phone from Decatur, Georgia. Judy, thanks for your call. Yes, I've been listening, and uh, I'm an old nurse who has worked with people in crisis for some time. Uh, and I was happy to see another alternative besides uh, birth control for uh, people in the poor countries. And it's a special that was put on television of the enrichment of rice that possibly can be produced and reduce the need for uh, hunger and such things. By helping people get food, they're less right. likely to have a lot of kids. Because, right. Okay. And, well, and have less kids, and if they do, maybe they can feed them. Because in Venice, they put um, contraceptive chemicals in the feed for the pigeons. Well, You're not talking yeah. about that. No. Good. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no. You're saying because we've got some great rice that can feed more people, they'll be less hungry, and they'll be more educated, and they'll be better control of their lives and less insecure and right. consequently, they'll, they'll have less need for birth control. Right. If I could just respond to that, too. I mean, I appreciate your comment. For Asia and Latin America, there has been a green revolution. What we still need is a green revolution for Africa, where the conditions are different. In Asia and Latin America, to a large extent, people are dependent on one or a couple of basic grains for uh, much of their nourishment. Uh, in Africa, it's a bit more complex. There's not quite as simple a way of, of uh, solving the problem. Norman Borlaug, the father of the Green Revolution, has spent some time in, in Africa, actually, and, and he says that what we need in Africa is uh, market mechanisms, some of the basic market mechanisms, and some of the, you know, the basic infrastructure, uh, government assistance, subsidies, some in many so, cases. So Asia had the economic and social infrastructure to let the did. Green Revolution take hold. It could take hold. And but in Africa, we need more of a less corrupt government, cleaner markets, better distribution in order for 
advances in agriculture to take That's over. right. A lot of the things that we okay. sort of assume everybody has, but you don't find in Africa. So a green revolution could take off. Thanks, right. Judy, for your call. Okay, thank you. Now, there are a lot of people that are concerned about cultural imperialism. Lindsay in Seattle emails us and says, My concern is cultural imperialism. When helping people overseas, how do you ensure that your organization focuses only on the goal of alleviating hunger and does not try to impart any sort of Christian belief system or aspects of our Western culture? Well, Bread for the World consistently has pushed empowering people within their own communities and countries. They have to have the ownership, and, and basically they have to determine what they need to do in order to work their way out of hunger and poverty. But as far as Christianity goes, you're just appealing to Christians in this country to get active politically. Right. And you can't really tell the government to help Christians in Sri Lanka. It's, no, no. It's governmental aid, which is blind to the That's religious right. stuff. I think Lindsay's concern would be valid for Mercy Corps or Oxfam or, yes. or Catholic Relief Services. Right. Or Lutheran World Relief or whatever. Right. But for Bread for the World, you're overtly Christian, but that goes to the government, and from that point on, it's secular. That's true, though we can see to it that government policies don't try to impose artificial solutions on uh, poor countries. Okay. So that the solutions that are developed, they really do come from the ground up and and have the ownership of the people. Barrage in Bellevue, Washington, emails us and uh, writes, This past July, my 15-year-old daughter and I spent a week in Kenya at a high-end safari camp followed by a week in Rwanda, visiting and serving uh, the work of another Christian NGO with victims of genocide, HIV, and hunger. Though the safari in Kenya was an incredible once-in-a-lifetime treat, it paled in comparison with our week in Rwanda, spent with the people where they live. It struck me that all the American and European tourists we saw and met on that luxury safari could go to Africa and leave without ever coming face-to-face with the hunger and suffering that Reverend Simon is addressing in his work. I know lots of folks and agencies bash volunteer tours and then short-term missions as selfish, voyeuristic, wasteful, and useless, and that may be true to some extent. But I saw the impact our trip had on my 15-year-old, and it was truly life-changing. I pray that the world gets smaller and smaller through more people traveling farther out, and the outcry of citizens will wipe out hunger forever. From Barrage in Bellevue, Washington. Interesting, isn't it? She spent a week on a luxury safari, and it was a great experience from a safari point of view, and a week doing just hands-on work in Rwanda. Yeah. Well, that's a great letter, great insight on her part. And I think that's exactly the value of uh, people going over on these uh, short-term missions. Yeah. Not so much that that we're going to make a huge difference for them on a short visit, but it'll change our lives. And that daughter, who's 15 years old now, for the rest of her life, when she looks at Africa... She'll see people. That's right. And she, in turn, is going to um, have an impact on hundreds, thousands of others. So I think we should stress there's, you don't need to be guilty about taking a high-end safari. That's fun. But if you want to enrich your travel experience and give it a whole different dimension, balance it. There's countless ways you could roll up your sleeves and get involved and, you know, call it voyeuristic. If, if, if somebody wants to call it that, that's fine. But you're going to learn from that. And for the rest of your life, you'll be an activist. That's absolutely, it's a life-changing thing. Art, is there some kind of stewardship concerns that goes with that? I mean, when you spend 3000 bucks to go to Africa to take photographs of people who make $300 a year and yeah. come home, it's not in itself wrong to do that. No. But talk about the stewardship element of that. Well, I think, you know, Jesus said, to whom much has been given, of him will much be required. And I think we have to be aware when we go on vacations, spend money on furniture or clothes or whatever, that there's a whole other side of life for most of the people of the world. Unless we're really giving of ourselves to connect with people like that in ways that are going to be helpful, then are we not just wasting what God has entrusted to us? you know, wasting it on ourselves. And losing an opportunity to make our understanding of this planet much more vibrant and human. Oh, yes. Art, you've spent 35 years working on this and working hard. When you look back, I know you've had a lot of triumphs and a lot of disappointments. What what triumph comes to mind as, as a favorite? Well, one of them was certainly the Women, Infants, and Children Supplemental Feeding Program, which now offers a lifeline to 9 million infants, toddlers, pregnant, and lactating mothers. 
the Child Survival Program internationally, the Jubilee Debt Reduction, which has had you know, real positive impact on a lot of people in a lot of countries. It must be so gratifying to work hard and to have that kind of legacy. But it's, they're, they're not easy victories. We have to fight every inch of the way. Sometimes we get clobbered. What's your biggest disappointment? What's your biggest close call and heartbreak? Um, during the 1980s, we basically got beat more often than we won on food stamp programs and anti-poverty measures here in the States. We did get progress on WIC, women, infants, and children, on child survival, and on the earned income tax credit. What about the peace dividend after the end of the Cold War? Big disappointment, yeah. Huge disappointment. We had some impact. I mean, there were some changes, but boy, we had an opportunity there that we let slip. And now when we look ahead, we've got listeners that care about hungry people. What are you hopeful for, and, and what's your advice to people? The most important single thing is for people to know that they can make a difference. You're a U.S. citizen. You can send a message to your own senators, your own representative on a hunger issue. And if it's timely and if it's from the heart, that's going to have an impact. You've got a book full of people who have done exactly that. And they've made a difference. Art Simon, founder of Bread for the World. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us. I met a man who had a dream He'd had since he was 20 I met that man when he was 81 He said too many folks just stand and wait until the morning Don't they know tomorrow never comes And he would be the new tomorrow coming on And when he Art Simon talks with Rick about the role of American political and religious figures in the effort to alleviate poverty. You'll hear it in the radio section of ricksteves.com. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. On Rick's website, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To prepare for your next European experience, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.